Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor, author, and woodworker, Nick Offerman. Nick grew up in Manuka, Illinois, a small town that, as Offerman is fond of saying, was about an hour and 15 years away from Chicago. And it's true, not much made its way to Manuka, but as one of four children, Nick found refuge working on his grandfather's soybean farm. It was there he learned how to work the land and use the tools. He says, It was a very frugal environment. We did a lot of fishing. We built things. We all sewed and cooked. In a farm community, you learn the importance of stepping up. And that's a big part of your sense of self-worth. And it's that self-worth he talks about that propelled Offerman forward. On stage, in television, in movies. You likely know him for his recurring role as Ron Swanson on Parks and Recreation, or his work in Devs, Fargo, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, Kings of Summer, or perhaps his one-man show, Nick Offerman, American Ham. Through his winding career, from carpenter to actor to author to woodworker, Offerman has done each job with a kind of quiet determination, always confident never cloying. These qualities are also true of his books, of which he's written five. His latest is called Where the Deer and the Antelope Play. 
the pastoral observations of one ignorant American who loves to walk outside. Joining him on this journey through the Glacier National Parks in Montana is author George Saunders and musician Jeff Tweedy. Together, they embark on this expedition. In the aftermath, Offerman has written this book, in which he shares his affinity for national parks, extolling the virtues of farming and conservation, what the outdoors can do for anyone willing to step outside of themselves and into nature. On the heels of our talk with author Richard Powers last week, this is kind of a remarkable double feature. Of course, Offerman and Powers couldn't be more different as writers, as men, and yet they are bound by this shared love and respect for nature. Speaking of which, if you can walk outside during this talk with Nick, I'd recommend doing so. I don't always recommend this, by the way. It's not like it's a prerequisite to listening to Talk Easy. But sometimes these episodes are best experienced in transit. I felt that way last week with Richard Powers. I felt that way earlier this year when we sat with George Saunders. And I feel that way today in this conversation with Nick. You'll understand why in time. You can thank me later. For now... Here is Nick Offerman. Nick Offerman, how are you doing? Good, Sam. How are you doing? The response was quick. That's uh, probably the last quick response you'll get from me. I have faith in you. Slow talking is my bag. And it, it, it doesn't help that the show is called Talk Easy. <laughs> I know. How have the last few months been for you, though? Hectic, chaotic, but fruitful and warm. The fruitful and warm part, I've been doing some acting jobs. Uh, I've been with my wife for 21 years, and the ups and downs of uh, living through the pandemic and like trying to get along with everybody has been wonderfully bolstered by my household. So the, all of that is is nice and supportive, which is great because then like traveling and, and being a part of a film company or a crowd of people on a tram at the Atlanta airport has been very difficult at times. So, I mean, that's, that's the hectic and chaotic part, looking at the uh, fellow earthlings around me and saying, man, how can we be so wrong so frequently? It, it's funny because that seems to be some of the guiding force of this new book. And in the opening, it's called Where the Deer and the Antelope Play. You write, ever since that epiphany, with my limited cognitive capacity, I thought you were being hard on yourself there. I have instead been able to periodically glimpse the ways in which we industriously sell to one another our own demise. One of the most pernicious ways in which we do that is by pretending and convincing one another that the planet's resources are unlimited. It's heavy shit. <laughs> that seems like a pretty clear mission statement for this book. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I haven't heard it read out loud. I'm, uh, I feel like it holds up pretty well. Did it feel okay coming from me? It really did. I mean, frankly, I take it as a compliment that you would read it on your show. Hopefully it makes the cut. Let me just write that down. Must cut. <laughs> Tim, grab that time code. <laughs> when I first read my first Wendell Berry stories in about 95, 
it's the same epiphany where, you know, I, I grew up in a rural part of Illinois in a farming family with great values and uh, was trying to make my way in, in the theater community of Chicago and really having a hard time reconciling myself, my self-worth with what I perceive to be popular culture and just mass media. What does that mean? I hadn't yet learned to value myself or understand that I had a place in the world of culture. You know, like I felt like a complete outsider. And all my cool friends who grew up in the suburbs or the city who already had heard of David Mamet, I was like, oh man, they're so far ahead of me. I'm such a dipshit. And so eventually I was like, oh, okay, you guys know all about Gucci and uh, and Versace and Vidal Sassoon, but this guy knows the difference between a standard and a Phillips-head screwdriver, and together we'll make magic. The way you said Gucci. <laughs> was it correct? But you think I would know? I wouldn't, but the way you said it, I can hear it playing over an ad. The uh, raiments of Stefano Gucci. I'm assuming Gucci is a Stefano. I, I hope so. When I d was looking for my place sort of in the world of storytelling and entertainment, somebody dropped these Wendell Berry stories on me, and it just was a, a huge epiphany about how the world I was trying to fit into was actually selling a, b a bill of goods to the rural world from which I came. And I've spent the subsequent 25 years, you know, trying to reconcile that and sort of tell everybody else, <laughs> you guys, I come from gardeners and we've forgotten about this and we shouldn't. At that same time in 1995, before your friend gives you some Wendell Berry to read, you're working at Steppenwolf and you have this time with Sam Shepard, who I think is kind of a fitting playwright for the culture you're talking about. It's hard to convey how culturally ignorant I was. Well, we can try. I'll give it a shot. Like, I still had no inkling that I could ever get from Chicago theater to New York or Los Angeles or to ever work in film or television. I had gone to theater school, and, and now I had a company in Chicago with my friends called the Defiant Theater, and we were professionally putting up plays, and then I ended up getting to work at Steppenwolf. But even then, Gary Sinise was directing the show. Uh, I was understudying Ethan Hawke. Sam Shepard was there doing rewrites on his incredible play, Buried Child, which is a great representation because it's about a corn farming family. Now, this is a play he won a Pulitzer Prize for in 1979, then decided he needed to do revisions on yeah. a play that won the most prestigious <laughs> prize. In That's correct. He was a hard man to please, apparently. Sam's usually are. You better come correct if you're going to sit down across from a Sam. I was a simple laborer, and I mean that affectionately. My skill set in my mid-20s was way more steered towards working professionally as a scenic carpenter. I was just beginning to understand the path to decent, representative, naturalistic acting. But it was my other skills. It was my work as a fight combatant and choreographer that uh, partially helped get me hired at Steppenwolf when we did A Clockwork Orange. And so I was just not that sharp. And so the fact that Sam Shepard, you know, 
sent me out for a bottle of Maker's Mark, I didn't see him as existing in my in the world I was in. I was one of the dipshits putting on plays here in this Chicago scene, and then a dinosaur or a dragon would come along, like Sam Shepard, and we didn't think, oh, he came from us, or we're, we're we can get where he is. And so he sent me out for whiskey, and and all I could think was in terms of how of like James Dean, you know, just asked me for a stick of gum, and I was like, oh my god, I'll never wash this pack of gum again. I went out and got him a bottle of bourbon, and by the end of the anecdote, I was given cause to stop and think, like, wait a second, this guy, it was before a rehearsal of Buried Child in which he was participating as playwright, like watching the rehearsal, doing rewrites, and so forth. Some people would say that's not a good idea to to use intoxicants at work, basically. Other people, especially from from Sam's heyday in the 70s, would say that, my friend, is what we call rock and roll. As a young person, I I gravitated towards, well, great, rock and roll sounds good. But as I became more and more of a working professional, I was like, oh, I I don't create my personal rock and roll by drinking whiskey. That's my reward for creating rock and roll. If I'm gonna be rock and roll, it's going to be from soberly, like applying the the skills I've been given. And so, you know, Sam and and the whole Steppenwolf company and, and situation, which is such a gorgeous anomaly, you know, these cool, smart, open-minded kids, mainly from Illinois, John Malkovich, Lori Metcalf, Glenn Headley, Jeff Perry, all came together and started this theater company that was really groundbreaking and and sort of dropped their drawers and showed their rear ends to American theater. You've said a couple times already that you felt as an outsider that the acting space you orbited in appeared otherworldly, something far away from where you grew up in Manuka, Illinois. But I'm wondering, at what point do you think these two worlds diverged or maybe converged? That's that's a great question. So so I moved to Los Angeles um, and had two or three years of flailing, like trying to find my way in this entirely different animal of a city. What does that look like? I mean, simply being broke, uh, living with my best friend and, and drinking a lot of bourbon and smoking a lot of weed and watching the movie Billy Jack over and over again. And just, you know, trying to like stay true to our, our shared artistic sensibilities while the world is telling us, don't be weird and like yourself, do everything you can to get on Baywatch or Dawson's Creek. And having the wherewithal to be like, nah, I don't, I think that would be a bad move. This is 1996 to 1999. That's correct. And you're 26 to 29? Late 20s, yeah. I was really having a tough time and I said, you know what? Los Angeles is not a good theater town um, because everybody that you would want to do theater with is busy doing TV and film. But nonetheless, my entire adulthood is founded upon theater, so I need to do a play. And I sort of announced this to my circle of friends and two very great casting directors, Nicole Arbusto and Joy Dixon, uh, hooked me up with this production of a Charles Mee play called The Berlin Circle, in which I met my wife, my future wife, Megan Mullally. I mean, it was 
never lost on me uh, the power with which I said, you know, theater built this guy named Nick Offerman. And if I'm going to survive, it's going to be with theater. It was a fascinating turn of events because uh, I had come to Los Angeles and like had good luck. I got meetings with studios and casting people and they all basically one way or another said, you, you're not cool. Like you don't get it. And I was like, I, I couldn't agree more. I did. I, I never said I did. I, I like doing plays. <laughs> Do you have any of those going? I like you showing up to a film studio being like, plays? I mean, my resume, I had a wonderful theater resume. And they would look at it and say, "This, have you been on MTV? Like, what, what, what are we supposed to do with you? And when you're standing there in front of these casting directors, or maybe even before you walk into that audition, what is going through your head? Not much. I mean... I was pretty thick-headed. When I was in Chicago, things started going well, right towards the end of Chicago. And I had a little part in a film in Indianapolis. It was a Ben Affleck film before Good Will Hunting. It was a Sundance movie called Going All the Way. And I had a wonderful time as like a supporting antagonist in that film. Most of my role got cut, actually. Uh, sadly, because Ben had a prosthetic beard that looked so bad, they cut the beard scenes, which were my scenes. Nonetheless, the the gang on that film was very supportive and said, you uh, make really funny faces, you should try Los Angeles. And I said, that's all I need. Uh, <laughs> it's incredible that it just took a couple lines of encouragement and I think a, a whole bunch of talent. A whole bunch of potential energy that I didn't know what to do with yet. Once once I got here and, and was in those meetings, I I knew that I wasn't cut out to pursue a typical Hollywood path. And so pretty quickly, I quit auditioning for commercials and started working as a carpenter more full-time. Eventually, I'm coming back around to answer the question of when did, when did I feel like I diverged with uh, the rest of the people? And I guess that was in my early years with Megan when I first got to hang around uh, Will and Grace in 2001. I befriended the writers and the, the people making the show, and that's when I, sort of in another uh, graduation from the Steppenwolf days, I learned that we're all just trying to find our ass with both hands. It's that adult lesson of, oh, the high school principal that I thought was such an authority figure was just as big a dipshit as I am, like, or if not more, which is a wonderful lesson. I mean, it's, you know, if you could go back and tell the younger self anything, for me, it's always everybody probably shat themselves sometime in the last year. And that humanizes everybody. This is also just a person. And so I can just be myself instead of trying to be some other notion of a a cool actor. (laughs) But it's funny, as children were told, when you're nervous in front of people, imagine them without clothes. Right. As opposed to being told, imagine them being rich, complicated, nuanced people with problems like your own. I feel like the the underwear imagining is not effective. I think that's totally true. I think become a trick partially through listening to George Saunders. I now have an immediate switch that I flip. If somebody's behaving in an aggressive or violent way 
instead of thinking, should I punch them or what should I do? I think what must have happened to them this morning or in their childhood or somewhere in between? Like, why are they so bummed out? Are you always able to do that? Well, it's kind of new. Recently, I was on a tram car at the Atlanta airport, and it was one of those tram cars just kept filling up with people like a subway car. This is what you mentioned earlier. Yeah, and it gets like a sardine situation. And halfway down this packed car, this muscled dude had his mask under his chin. And the whole rest of the car, of course, uh, is filled with decency and people covering up. Uh, For some reason, the guy made eye contact with me. And I took the front of my mask and I just tugged. I just gently was like, hey, put your mask on. And the guy reached under his chin and tugged on his mask and looked at me insouciantly as if to say, go fuck yourself. And I thankfully had just been listening to George Saunders (laughs) talk about seeing other people as broken machines. And we're all, you know, doing our best to like deal with these incorrect perceptions of the world that we have. And thankfully, I was able to just be like, okay, don't in, don't go shove this dude. Like, don't engage in, in aggressive behavior. What's wrong with this guy? What's wrong with all of us? Like, you know, and I was able to derail whatever aggression, whatever pugnacious reaction that ignited in me. And I felt like that was a great victory. Even though I got off the tram, was like, oh, man, at least I turned off the uh, the five-alarm fire in my head of... That guy's being a jerk. You should go punch him. I think especially in the past year, George Saunders has slowly engendered some kindness in people. He's disarming. Like the reason I, one of the many reasons I love him and Jeff Tweedy and aspire to their degree of sort of empathetic philosophy and humor in their work is because of their ability to do just that. As, as middle-aged, straight, white guys to sort of ask these questions of our human nature and say, how can we continue to, to be decent to one another? George has his, his famous uh, graduation speech about kindness. It's disarming because he sounds like such a, like, south side of Chicago, like, just a normal guy. Like, do you want to talk? And you're like, oh, no, you're, you are the Buddha. <laughs> like... He's had a profound effect on me and I think on everyone who works on this show after he came on. But that question you ask, how can we be decent? I wondered, was that something you were asking before you met Megan or something you really started to ask of yourself as you fell in love? Oh boy, I had a moment when I got to college, probably about age 19, when I had been on my own two feet for just maybe two or three months away from mom and dad's house. And everything landed on me. They're they're simple and life lessons of decency and work ethic and common sense values landed on me in a way that I called home and said, okay, first of all, I apologize for the last four years of my behavior. Okay, so let's reenact this here. Okay. You call. All right. Can you do the sound effect for us? Hello? Uh, hello, Mom. Can I uh, can I talk to Dad? <clears throat> hello? Hello, Dad. It's Nick. I'm at a payphone near the quad of Urbana, Illinois. Is that in Iowa? No, that's, that's Illinois, Dad. You know, it's about two and a half hours 
straight south, you're the one that showed me where it is on a map. So now I'm worried. But listen, don't distract me. I wanted to tell you that uh, I'm sorry for the behavior uh, of the last four or five years. You know what I'm talking about. My experiments uh, in other ways of life besides the one you suggested to me. And I wanted to just say thank you for, uh, for the simple teachings that you and mom have given me. Be 6'2 and even. Tell the truth. Work as hard as you can. And nobody can ever question you. And from here on out, I'm going to endeavor to do just that. Are you still there, Dad? You know what? I, I got to be honest. We, uh, I had to put you on hold. Your, your brother, Matt, was calling on the other line. I had to take it. Uh, what's, what's on hold in 1989? <laughs> Click. <laughs> One of us is an actor, very clearly. That was when I realized that like the selfish parts of my human nature were something that I would be combating for the rest of my life. And, and sort of like all the stuff they'd been talking about in the Catholic church I grew up in, I was like, oh, okay, if you just put it this way, I would have gotten it. But you had to dress it up in all these parables that put us all to sleep like and so that's when my road to adulthood started and then once I got into my relationship with Megan and pretty soon within a year or two realized I was going to do my best to marry her again I just leaned on on the values my mom and dad instilled in me so that's like the personal domestic part of it but this book addresses more how we all participate in general, in in all of society. And that didn't really kick in, I think, until my mid to late 30s, when I began to understand that I could choose and affect the narratives that I become involved in. You know, first, you're as an actor, you're just desperately trying to get a job so you can get health insurance and get your tooth fixed. But then eventually, if it goes well, you begin to collaborate with people uh, that you find to be like-minded. And in my case, it was with the community of Parks and Recreation and the the brain and heart of Mike Schur, who was one of the main creators of that show. And and that led me to, to say, oh, okay, uh, like me, he wants to make people laugh. That's a wonderful way to deliver medicine. But also you can say I love you to each other and you can pay attention to whatever your produce might be whether it's turnips or blue jeans or, or TV comedy, you can pay attention to, to its impact on the world. And it coincided when I began to tour as a humorist and create my own content, write my first book and, and ask the question, okay, what do I want to tell my readership or my audience? I love uh, trying to pass along the great teaching that I've had the good fortune to take on board, oh, you should, let me tell you uh, what my teacher taught me, my sensei Shozo Sato in kabuki class, and then, you know, throw in a couple jokes and you have uh, an evening in the theater. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. 
It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. When you were being taught by Shozo Sato at the University of Illinois, he instilled in you this idea of always being a student, always learning every day. And in many ways, when I think of what I know of your marriage with Megan, it strikes me as something that requires and has received 
routine maintenance, which is what all love requires. But if we could go back to those early months of courtship, because at that point, you're in this play that we talked about, the Berlin Circle. You're sleeping on a couch in someone's basement. I don't know if it has a bathroom. Um, that That's correct, yeah. I mean... It, does, it doesn't have a bathroom with plumbing. It has a dirt floor, which at the time we called a bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so how does this happen? I never could have uh, gotten to, to do the things I've gotten to do in my life without my sensei teaching me that little idiom. And that just always stuck with me, uh, especially when I was no longer technically a student. When I got to Los Angeles, I had to maintain an openness. The answers were never apparent when I arrived in each phase in my life, whether it was Hollywood or in my relationship with Megan. It didn't make any sense at all when we met. I just had a real classist leaning in my brain so when I met Megan, she was doing great. She was about to win her first Emmy for Will and Grace. She was gorgeous, Broadway star, talented, was wearing fashionable clothing. I mean, even that was outside of my realm of perception where I was like, oh, you are announcing when you walk in the door, again, that you, like Sam Shepard, you're not, I'm not of you. We're not on the same plane. And pretty quickly... Our magnetism, the parts of ourselves that were attracted to one another, made themselves known, and the rest of me was terrified. And in hindsight, I can see that I was able to maintain the attitude of a student and say, okay, what's going on here? I'm getting a lot of signals that there's going to be lovemaking here at some point, but at the same time, that doesn't jibe with the the shoes that you're wearing that I've only seen on television or, or what have you. And I was terrified. And I guess many times I've been terrified because the, I'm entering into an unknown part of, of the realm of the world. What does a terrified you look like? I get butterflies really bad. Um, I mean, I specifically remember having, having this inclination about Megan and myself there's no greater place to make friends. Like if you've ever been in a school or church situation, either you're really good at making fart noises or just good at farting. It's your confederates, the people who you make eye contact with and then try not to laugh. And that enjoyment of not laughing in a, in a reverential setting you take that backstage at the theater and the things that you do backstage with your castmates to fuck around when what's happening on stage, your your life's work, which demands the ultimate reverence, makes it so funny to be silently or irreverent offstage. The friendship that, that's de that that develops is just one of the most delicious, uh, gratifying things in my life. And so Megan and I quickly became that, where we're like... It's just the little one-liners. And she would say things to me. She was so filthy. And I would go home every night to my best friend, Pat, and be like, check out what she said today about my balls. Like this, no, her, the, you know, the, the lead of the show. And you were waiting for a woman to say that about your balls. I was. I, I was like, she's the one. Mm -hmm. I found her. <laughs> I can't wait to 
go home to my dad one day and say, <laughs> check out what she said about my balls, dad. And so all of those positive signals were happening. But at the same time, I was a peasant. I mean, it was very pre- peasant prince and the pauper circumstance. I was country mouse. Any more descriptors for what you were? <laughs> no, that's it. I was terrified of stepping into the world where people pay $35 for a pair of dress socks. My family, my extended farm family in Illinois, there's a defense mechanism where you don't buy brand name soda. And we all agree. So if we showed up at a family picnic with Coca-Cola instead of generic cola, eyes would roll. People would say, oh, I guess you're putting on airs, as they used to say. Like, you're holding yourself above, and that's dangerous. You sprung for the 30 cents pricier soda. Exactly. But that is, that's a licentiousness in, in your living that's dangerous to a community. I don't think that word licentiousness has ever been described around Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> Choosing Coke over Diet Cola. These are heady times, Sam. But but no, it's tr- it's something that I was r- really aware of where once I moved in with Megan and, and became part of her world, I then would wear clothing home to Manuka that I was aware was offensive because it was not bought at JCPenney or the Farm and Fleet. So there's this old-fashioned sensibility that's protective, that's that's like, oh, we don't buy those fancy shoes because we don't give ourselves permission. That's part of our frugality by which we survive. So that was the terrifying part was was me saying, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna enter your world where you're gonna take me to the halls of J. Crew and and put me in a try to put me in a sweater. Uh, she hasn't succeeded yet, but we tried. And the turning point came that night at the Hollywood Bowl, seeing Glenn Campbell. Yeah, we tossed it back and forth. Megan had had some ups and downs. She had been dating, in her words, you know, she had been dating like rock drummer types, skinny little guys. And she was very much the, I think, the boss of of her dating relationships. And when she met me, I learned later, she found me also to be a strange animal. And she thought, oh, this isn't dating material. Like, if if I'm going to get into this, this is for keeps. And so with that in mind, she made me work a long time. Like, she made me ply my troth for months before, like, moving into the bedroom. It took four months? Is that how long? That sounds about right. That's what she's estimated. Yeah. That's a long time. It was. But I mean, you know, there were things going on. There were crumbs on the trail (laughs) before we got to the picnic basket. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll remind you, this is coming out of a few years of of drunken stumbling, of like, what is my, what am I? (laughs) And suddenly I found the love of my life. And so, as I told her at the time, I'll sleep on your couch for a long time. I don't, it's so much better. Than the couch I'm currently sleeping on. Than urinating on a dirt floor, yeah. And so we we ultimately uh, ended up going to the Hollywood Bowl to see Glenn Campbell on the 4th of July. He was in rare form. And during Rhinestone Cowboy, Megan leaned over and asked me to be her boyfriend. 
and the, I mean, I, you know, in hindsight, I believe then all the fireworks went off at once. <laughs> it was a big night. Well, why don't we play Rhinestone Cowboy by the late Glenn Campbell? Sure. There's been a load of compromising On the road to my horizon But I'm gonna be where the lights are shining on me Like a rhinestone cowboy Riding out on a horse in a star-spangled rodeo So if we're writing the story of this, in the aftermath of that night, you two officially are boyfriend-girlfriend. A couple years later, you get married by your former professor. What I want to go to is this remarkably strange coincidence in the early to mid-2000s. You and your wife would be home watching The Office, and now and again, you would see... The character played by Rain Wilson, I think his name is Dwight. Dwight Schrute. People at home are like, yeah, it's Dwight, obviously. You would see this character and, and turn to your wife and say, you know, if this is ever going to work out for me, it's going to be a character like that on a show like this. And lo and behold, 2009 comes around and you go through a pretty arduous process to get the role of Ron Swanson. There's a big phone call that happens, but walk us through the steps before you got that phone call. Backing up even a little farther, when I used to go religiously to watch Will and Grace tape every week, and I learned that TV shows uh, and films are made by people just like me, I would work as a carpenter all day, then go watch Will and Grace, and then drive home over the hill and think, man, how could I ever get a job like that. And then, you know, I got better and better sort of guest star roles and I and I had this experience with Megan. Now I knew Rain Wilson. We had auditioned together many times over the years. I felt like we were kind of on the same team. Uh, we would always read for like the weird guy in the basement. So he had a great little arc on Six Feet Under, which is maybe the best show in our lifetimes. And then he had his, you know, huge breakout run as Dwight Schrute. And so I said that to Megan. I had actually auditioned with others, you know, to for the role of Michael Scott. Uh, I did not get that part. But then they read me for some other stuff on The Office. So I wasn't completely out in left field uh, in saying that. Eventually, I read for a small role that Mike wanted to cast. It was an episode that Mike had written. So I auditioned for Greg and Mike and uh, the great casting director Allison Jones and um, and Mike wanted to cast me in this part he really uh, he loved me like I really struck a chord with him that day and I couldn't do it unfortunately because I had coincidentally promised myself to Gary Sinise uh, I had a rule at the time and that was no CSI shows but then Gary uh, who I knew from Steppenwolf was doing CSI New York and there was this guest star spot, and, and I committed to doing this CSI New York episode. Mike sure wants to cast me on The Office, finally. 
and I can't do it. And if I'm a man of my word, if I wasn't, I could just say, sorry, Gary, something, you know, but something better came along. But I, I didn't. I stuck to my guns. And thankfully, Mike wrote my name on a post-it, put it on his computer monitor. And a few years later, when he was asked to, uh, to create a new show with Greg, sort of a spinoff of The Office initially, he had that post-it. And he said, I really want this guy on, my sh- on the show. I don't know. Somehow they got it in their heads to try me out. And they liked me. But NBC... Uh, wasn't satisfied. They were like, yeah, I don't think so. So they made them audition every other actor available on the planet, really for months. And it was very painful because I knew that this was the situation that like they creatively wanted me, but couldn't sort of cast me until they had exhausted every other possibility. So finally, at the end of that arduous process, they had me come in for a final audition which they turned into NBC, and I got the job. The final sort of straw, the tipping point was Amy Poehler had come to town to to start work, and so they had me come in and improvise some scenes with Amy, and that's what they taped and sent to NBC. And I had the good sense to just be quiet and let Amy improvise, because that's what she does. And then at the end of each scene, I would say like one thing, like, uh, Leslie, I've heard what you are asking me, and my answer is no. And they were like, great, you got you know, you know, got it. So Mike Schur called me to tell me that I got the job. Gosh, I remember sitting at our breakfast island, and I just immediately started wetly sobbing, which is warm water rushing out of my face because I was 38 years old, and so for... For a good 12 years at least, you know, I'd been dealing with a lot of rejection in circumstances like these. And so not only was it the first time that I finally got the call, but also the realization that all of the other lesser projects that I didn't get, I never could have gotten this one if if I had gotten one of those. Said, Mike, please keep talking to me. I'm just going to cry here. Uh, into your ear. (laughs) And I was right. Uh, I I was right to cry because it changed my life. Ron Swanson will be next. When it comes to government hearings, the only type of witness I enjoy being is a hostile one. That's why I intend to answer every one of their questions with a question. Were you aware that all of the entertainment and food was provided by rec center teachers? Would I have stayed if I knew that? I don't know. Would you have? Would you have? No, I wouldn't have. Did you hear Leslie make any promises? What constitutes a promise? A quid pro quo. Oh, do you know Latin? Okay. Thank you, Ron. The less I know about other people's affairs, the happier I am. I'm not interested in caring about people. I once worked with a guy for three years and never learned his name. Best friend I ever had. I would prefer that she ask me for my permission so I can say no. I like saying no. It lowers their enthusiasm. The role definitely changed your life. And the character Ron Swanson has become kind of embedded into the fabric of American culture. And that happened for better or worse, because during the Trump years, there was um, kind of memifying that happened of Ron Swanson's values 
And when I look back at this, it reminds me a little bit of how Archie Bunker was perceived in the aftermath of All in the Family. Norman Lear, Carol O'Connor, both devout liberals. And yet many people look to Archie Bunker as validation for their behavior, reasons to be racist, misogynist, a patriot. The satire was lost on them. And some of that seemed to happen with your character. It has been a very interesting part of, uh, of the fandom of, the, of that role. In every instance, Ron Swanson's um, his political stances, I, I, don't, I don't think they ever veer from decency. He's kind of a cartoon character. He can exist in a, in a TV comedy written by incredibly intelligent people in a way that he can, I don't think he can exist in reality. It's, it's strange. It's strange when people misperceive the intent of the show, uh, which is so good-hearted to begin with, but so is universal health care. <laughs> and either way, you can, you can have people shaking their fist, demanding that they retain their God-given right to go to hell. And, and so when I'm dealing with my readership or my audience, and I have those people that are taken by surprise and say, wait a second, you're a snowflake. I do my best to gently say, no, I, I don't say, no, you're a jerk if you are. I say, no, but we all have been, and we all have that within us. So here's why. And if I can, if I can bring a few Ron Swanson heads along with each performance on tour or each book, that's kind of the crux of of my work is like, instead of shaking my fist or, or, or trying to incite rancor, instead saying, we are a bunch of humans and we, by definition, have been screwing up the whole time and we will always continue to screw up. It's important to remember, I think, that even when we get something right, it won't stay right because everything keeps changing and evolving and decaying and dying. And so what life is about is, is uh, the constant vigilance of trying to do right with, with the new circumstances presented by e the birth of each new season. And so to anyone across the political rainbow, I say, look, we're all screwing up. You know, we're in a country where we ostensibly get to pick what happens and look at, <laughs> look at how much pain and injustice there is. So how can we, what do you guys want to talk about, you know, to keep moving forward? What can we fix? What have we done wrong? What can we do better? And I, and I think Ron would agree with most of those things. And where he doesn't agree, Leslie will bring him around eventually. I like this idea of you bringing some of those diehard fans with you on your travels. And as we leave, I was thinking about where you wanted to take people with this book. I want to take us to the farm and sink our, our hands into the soil and have the farmers that know tell us what's good or not about that soil and why and how we've caused it to be that way. Take us to the woods and take us to the national parks and say, okay, what have we done here that's right? And, uh, okay, that was quick. Now let's talk about what we've done that's wrong. And Everybody might want to sit down. This is going to take a minute. We did this. We committed genocide against these indigenous tribes, for example, we can cop to that. It's okay. It's understandable. We're human animals, you know, 
they have more apples than we do. Sometimes we think we need to kill them to get the apples. The humans, that's part of what we do. But let's cop to it and say, okay, now what if we find a way to try and distribute the apples without any killing? So I'd, I would like to take us into that conversation uh, and hopefully some smarter people than me will get up on the tree stump and say, okay, guys, first of all, here's a cure for cancer I came up with. Now let's talk about apples. Well, part of the book is you bring Jeff Tweedy and George Saunders into the Glacier National Park in Montana. You keep referring to them as two people smarter than you. No one's going to need any convincing on that front. At the end of your trip, you have a dinner. And I wondered, for those who haven't read the book yet, if you could recount some of that evening. When we had our final dinner to, to sort of wrap up the whole trip, George, in his inimitable way, you know, talked about how nice everybody was on the trail. And it devolved into this idea of when you're with people, it's a lot easier to to be nice in an instinctive way. When you see uh, another person, if they're not brandishing a weapon or their teeth, you think, okay, are we sharing this bus bench? Are you, is everything okay? But the farther you get from people, which is also represented, I think, by talking face-to-face, talking screen-to-screen, talking on the phone with no visual, to texting, by the time you get to that, it's become so impersonal that it's so much easier to shake your fist and say, I hate you. And Jeff talked about how he thinks that liberals in general are progressives. I I really like the terms conservative and progressive because part of conservatism in my way of thinking is people want to conserve the way things are. There's a sense of fear, I think, there. Like, let's everything's cool. The lights are on. Let's just all be cool. Like, so let's not go changing stuff. And progressives want to progress. They, they understand that our lights may be on, but not everybody's lights are on. According to the American documentation, everyone deserves to have their lights on in an equal measure. And so let's try and progress until that's the case. And Jeff points out that on the progressive side of things, what those people want us to accomplish is to love people in the abstract. Instead of think about foreigners or the other people and somehow create an enmity there like they have the oil or they want to do bad things to us, come to understand that we're all us and that we should love everybody. Uh, it's still going to be complicated. You know, just a car full of kids is, is enough to require a lifetime of negotiation, let alone a nation or a planet. But you have to start from the place that we're all in the same family. And ideally, we'd like to reach our destination with everybody still alive and healthy in that vehicle full of kids. Well, we've reached our destination, and and that is shortly after this trip, Jeff Tweedy of Wilco comes up with a song co-written by George Saunders that I'd like to play. I would love that. Let's call when it's time for us all to say goodbye. I know I'm gonna cry. I know I'm gonna cry. 
Cause all in all I'm just having a ball Being alive And I don't wanna die At the end of the end of this beautiful dream we're in, I'll wake up again, a robin or a wren, and I'll sit outside. How do you feel? Warm and fuzzy. I love those guys. Jeff is super good at songs. And so is George, in fact. It's like his... His secret is he's a very accomplished guitar player and writer of music himself. But I, I just, I love that about them, you know, that the existentialism of that song that's tied to one of the themes of my book, and that is we're all part of the same bag of molecules. And if you care about anything like your family or your community or your ecosystem, then we should try our best to treat it all with equal affection because it is all the same. And that's a hard thing, I think, for everyone to wrap their heads around, but we could just start with the people and then we could maybe expand that to the people and the animals. Fittingly, I have a poem for us that I thought you may want to read before we leave. Oh, gosh, okay. This, uh, This was by Wendell Berry and it's called The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. That's all I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that that, that a little more of that and a little less maybe of fantasy football can be not a punishment, but a reward. Nick Offerman. (laughs) Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me, Sam. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Carla Parisi, the publishing team at Dutton, and of course, Nick Offerman. His new book, Where the Deer and the Antelope Play, The Pastoral Observations of One Ignorant American, 
who loves to walk outside, is available wherever you do your reading. To learn more about Nick and his work, visit our website at talkeasypod.com. There, you'll find a back catalog of over 265 episodes. If you enjoyed today's talk, I'd recommend past conversations with artists like George Saunders, Ted Danson, Allison Pill, Joel Meyerowitz, Uzo Aduba, Alan Alda, Larry Wilmore, Elizabeth Gilbert, Jimba Lahiri, and many, many more. You can find all of those on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to support our program by purchasing one of our mugs or our vinyl record with Fran Leibowitz, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. Of course, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producers are Caitlin Dryden and Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's episode is Caitlin Dryden. Our assistant editor is Clarice Guevara. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gamberzak, Orion Wong, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. I'd also like to give a special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, Shiloh Fagan, and Callie Syringus. Our engineer is Tim Moore. We tape out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. Our producer is Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with Jeff Garland. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.